yep. eventually, <laughs> through all of this, it all works out okay. That's pretty right. much all we need to say about the rest of the plot. <laughs> Hello, welcome to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai, and we are here with our third annual themed month. Well, annual is not the actually seasonal. correct. Okay, <laughs> seasonal, that's the fair. third seasonal, seasonal <laughs> themed month. What an exciting time to be a no script record. I mean, I'm 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 a no script listener in that I listen to our episodes, but really, right. I'm a no script recorder or a host. Yes. What an exciting <laughs> time to be a no script host. Super exciting time. This is kind of a, a new style of theme for us, too. We, we, we've done an author theme before, a themed month of Miller Month, if you remember last season. And, oh boy, hearkening back, what was the first one we did, The first Jacob? one was a theme genre, musicals. Yeah. And we focused on four musicals and something brand new for season three. We're talking about four plays that have a common structural or dramatic element. In this case, magic. October is magic month. Yeah, magic, how it works and plays, what it does dramatically, some of the systems that it rotates around. So I'm excited to get to jump in. We got we got the you know the the, the oldest magic the, writer well, in the book. It's the <laughs> magic play, right? I would imagine yeah. that most of you, if we said, quick, what's a play with magic in it? I, I would guess probably better than half would name this play. Now I haven't taken any statistics, so I'm just really just guessing out of thin air, but I would guess Better than half would say A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. That is the play that we will be talking about today. Um, I'm very excited. I got to uh, kind of be a part of some of the production of this play during college. Uh, we did it as a kid's show, which was a unique challenge. I think we pared it down to about half of what the play actually is. But, uh, yeah, but it was I'm a ex- really inter- it, it's a it's a Commedia dell'arte adaption for youth of the script. I actually have that that. Commedia dell'arte adaption it's it's a really fun script on its own and and uh, the production photos from your all production look great it, it involves only four actors that play yeah. the whole cast of folks from midsummer it's just crazy like a lot of changing parts a lot of fun but i'm excited to get to jump into it in a minute but before we kind of get into the script i did want to take just a second and thank everyone who has made their way over to patreon.com slash no script and become patrons of the show if you are a longtime listener and you enjoy the show you enjoy uh you know listening and commenting and talking about the show that's great if you're looking to invest in the future of no script the podcast patreon.com slash no script podcast is the best way to do that head on over there we got a bunch of different tiers the lowest tier is just one dollar and for just one dollar you can help the show out quite a bit while this show is a labor of love for us it is not free alas alack alay there are fees associated with uh hosting the podcast and of course buying scripts and a significant amount of time for us so if you want to help out the podcast and contribute to it as a patron a patron head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we'll see you over there. And again, of course, just a big thank you to everybody who's already done that. We're really thankful for your support, and we hope that you're enjoying the patron-only posts over on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Now, back to the script. 
So this show was written, we believe, 1595, 1596, something like that, long time ago over the course of Shakespeare's career. Between now, between then and now, it's been performed thousands of times. It's a really, really popular Shakespeare script to do because it's pretty accessible. The language is pretty accessible in terms of the broader scope of what Shakespeare has written. The plot is a little more accessible than some of Shakespeare's shows. And it's also fun. It's a hilarious comedy. Lots of cool elements like that. It's really popular at high schools. And it's been done by by just about every regional theater you could name. One of the most important popular productions of the show was in 1970. Great director Peter Brook directed for the Royal Shakespeare Company this kind of uh, uh, minimalist production set in this white box that involved a lot of trapeze artistry. And, and that production has become a model for lots of other productions which now involve uh, circus art and trapeze art as kind of part of the world of Midsummer. That production um, involved Patrick Stewart and Ben Kingsley. They were in the cast. And then, of course, there is the famous movie, 1999. This movie involved Kevin Klein. He played Bottom. Stanley Tucci played Puck. Uh, Christian Bale played Demetrius. So that's a very famous movie adaption. But I really could go through a extensive hour-long list of all the various (laughs) productions, even just that the Royal Shakespeare Company has done. It's a hugely popular show. I do want to give a shout-out to the Folger Shakespeare Library. Uh, The Folger Theater produced what I think is a really brilliant audio recording of this show. You know, audio recordings for theater have their limitations, but this one for the Midsummer script I think is really, really good. There's some great sound design involved, but then the performances I think are really strong and the actors clearly have a really good grasp of the English sentence level Shakespeare, so it becomes very understandable and and really quite a pleasant, funny listen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This this play already kind of, as you said, lends itself to that. But but certainly, an, an audio version of that play, if you're gonna if you're gonna find one, go to that one. What was the name of it again, Jacob? It's the, the one done by the Folger Shakespeare Library. You can purchase it on like Google Books, is where I have my copy of it. Uh, but but it's available in lots of different places. The Folger Theater produced the audio recording. Yeah, yeah. So go ahead and check that out. And now I'm going to, for those of you who haven't read or listened to or interacted with recently, I'm going to do my best to synopsize this script. And we're probably going to tag team it a little bit because it, for for being a pretty straightforward plot, there's there's quite a bit going on. Yeah, I would around. call it an accessible plot. I think that's the word I use. I would yeah. not call it a straightforward plot. Yeah, maybe maybe straight is not the right word. Fairly Winding convoluted probably... plot, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so most of it or a good structure of it maybe is to think about it with three groups. Um and, and one of the groups, so I'm gonna read off some names. This is all set in Athens, by the way. So we have kind of Greek-style names going on. So bear with me here. We have Theseus, who is the Duke of Athens. uh, And and he's getting married to Hippolyta, who is Queen of the Amazons. Recently conquered, I believe, is what I I read into this play. And uh, they are uh, betrothed and about to be married. That's the kind of festival setting of this play. (laughs) They're about to be married. There's going to be a big party. The first line of the play is Theseus says... Now, fair Hippolyta, our nuptial hour draws on apace. We are about to get yep. married. 
<laughs> exactly. So so into that steps Aegeus, is how I'm going to say this guy's name. Aegeus is father to Hermia, and he has a problem for uh, the Duke of Athens to solve. Um, his daughter Hermia is in love with Lysander when she should be in love with Demetrius in Aegeus's mind. <laughs> Aegeus is trying to get her to marry Demetrius. Both Lysander and Demetrius love Hermia, but Hermia only loves Lysander. So uh, this kind of begins to broil. Some threats are made against Hermia as to if she, if she doesn't marry uh, Demetrius, she is either going to be killed or become a nun. And uh, so, so that's kind of the, the start setting for this play is that group. Add in one more character as you're thinking through that group, and that is Helena, who is Hermia's friend. Helena and Hermia are are childhood friends. Helena is in love with Demetrius, and alas, her uh, love is not returned by Demetrius, who has only eyes for Hermia at the beginning of this play. Right, yeah, and and if you're confused a little bit because Helena and Hermia sound a lot alike, and that seems really confusing... You're right. They sound <laughs> you're, you're a lot alike, wrong. and that's pretty confusing and probably is deliberate. This group we might call the lovers. Uh, the main problem at this point in the script is that Hermia wants to marry Lysander. Her father has told her she has to marry Demetrius or die or become a nun. Helena is in love with Demetrius. Demetrius is not in love with Helena. So to solve this problem, Lysander and Hermia decide they're going to run away. They're going to elope, escape into the woods. Lysander has like a relative in a town that can put him up, I guess, and get him married. So they're going to run away. Helena, in a bizarre, poorly thought out plan, learns of what's going on with Lysander and Hermia and decides that the best way to make Demetrius fall in love with her is to tell Demetrius that the girl he's really in love with is running away with Lysander and follow Demetrius into the woods. So all four lovers are in the woods. That's probably as far as we can get with that group without introducing the next group of the fairies. Yes, so the fairies all live in the woods. The fairies are Oberon, who is king of the fairies, Titania, queen of the fairies, and then there is Puck, who is Oberon's jester slash confidant slash errand runner. He's Puck's like a, great a character. trickster fairy. A Puck is like a specific type of fairy. Um, and so we often call this fairy Puck by name. It's actually a title, which is kind of weird, and you don't really realize until you read the actual script. And <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, actually, this Puck, this Puck's name, he has a real name, like Robin Goodfellow or something. But <laughs> yeah. we call him Puck, and he's a sort of a trickster, fun character. And Oberon and Titania, like you said, king and queen of the fairies, they're currently in a conflict. Their marriage, their union is not going real well. Yeah, there's like a disagreement about a, a like a <laughs> is it a shapeshifter or some child well, that a she changeling, has? Changeling, which yeah. you gotta like read footnotes to understand. This is one of those odd Shakespeare moments. A changeling isn't like what we think of as like a superhero or like a shapeshifter. It's um it's a word for a child who was switched at birth with another child. Ah, so Titania has ended up with this child who is not hers. She claims she didn't actually steal it. Oberon's accusation is that she did. And uh, anyway, Oberon wants the child to become one of his servants. Why? It's not really that clear why he's so interested in this in this kid. 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of stuff you could infer, but the play does not uh, give you that at all. And and for whatever reason, Titania's not on board with it. She doesn't want him to have this kid. There is some uh, mention of some allegiance to her mother that she claims that she's like wanting to raise the kid out of a. Uh, you know, respect for the mother, but that's all kind of secondhand information in the play. So at any rate, they're mad at each other. They're kind of feuding with their two courts. Uh, Oberon has some fairies with him, but uh, Titania has a whole court of fairies that comes with her whenever she's on, on stage. And those two are kind of circling around each other, trying to mostly Oberon is trying to uh, poke at Titania to try to get her to give him the boy. So the long story short is these two warring factions of fairies have both arrived in the woods. They're there because of the wedding of Theseus and Hippolyta that's going to go on. Oberon, being mad at his wife Titania, tells Puck to go find this love potion that right. he's going to use to basically play an elongated prank on Titania and get the child that he has been wanting. Uh, he tells Puck to go find the potion while Puck is gone Oberon learns that Demetrius is not in love with Helena because he sees them in the woods, and right. Helena is in love with Demetrius. Demetrius is treating Helena really badly. So when Puck returns, Oberon says, oh, by the way, put some love potion on the eyes of this Athenian guy so that he'll fall in love with this poor girl. And so that's Puck says, sure, I'll do that. So Oberon <laughs> goes on to put the ta- love potion on Titania's eyes to prank her, Puck, meanwhile, finds an Athenian man and an Athenian woman in the forest like he was supposed to and puts love potion on the Athenian guy's eyes. But... (laughs) However, he happened to find Lysander and Hermia instead of Demetrius and Helena. So he he stumbles across them. They fit the description that Oberon gave gave him to try to find. And so he applies the love potion to Lysander's eyes. And then the the, the, even further down the line of this kind of tricky storyline is while they are asleep... While uh, Lysander and Hermia are asleep, Demetrius and Helena walk by, and Helena, like, Demetrius leaves her in the dust. Helena, like, stumbles across Lysander, wakes him up, and so the, the, the trick, and I'm sure we'll get into this being this, this being Magic Month, the trick of the love potion is the first creature the person sees when they wake up, they fall madly in love with. And so Helena wakes up Lysander, and now Lysander is suddenly in love with Helena instead. Meanwhile, to all of this, there's the third group, which is this group of amateur actors. They all have other (laughs) jobs, but they've come together to put on a play for the wedding of Theseus and Hippolyta. The most famous of these actors is Bottom. We will soon learn why. Uh, They're going to put on a play which is entitled the, uh, The Most Lamentable Comedy and Most Cruel Death of Pyramus and Thisbe. Pyramus and Thisbe is uh, this ancient love myth, which is in Ovid's Metamorphosis, uh, and they have decided to put on a play version of it. Again, they're amateurs in the woods. During rehearsal, Puck stumbles across them, being a trickster. He decides he's going to transform Bottom into a half-donkey. He puts a donkey's head on Bottom. This is the famous Bottom character with the donkey's head. Right, right, and and much hilarity ensues with that. Uh, he uh, <laughs> bottom winds up scaring his fellow actors away because he has this donkey head. And uh, prior to this, Oberon has showed up and put the love potion on on uh, Titania's eyes, and she wakes up 
to bottom as the donkey head. Do you see why the plot's a little convoluted? Yep, yep. If you're hanging with us still, way to go. Yeah, you, you've really, you deserve it because this is a crazy plot. Yep. Eventually, through all of this, it all works out okay. That's pretty right. much all we need to say about the rest of the plot. Pretty much. It the, works the tangle, out. Yeah, the tangle resolves. Everyone finds different people. Demetrius is still, like, love potion drugged at the end of the play, but yeah, let's well, that, that That's, one I think, the maybe carpet. the beat that we didn't say is that Puck and Oberon realize that Puck love potioned the wrong guy. So Puck yep. also puts love potion on Demetrius' eyes, and Demetrius also falls in love with Helena. So right. Demetrius and Lysander, who started the play in love with Hermia because of this love potion, end up in love with Helena. And that is that's kind of the main conflict of the lovers plot. Then there's the Titania's in love with the person with the donkey's head plot. And then the mechanics plot becomes so involved with the fairies plot because Bottom is one of the actors, one of the rude mechanics. Right, right. So they all kind of tie together. They all come to the festival at the end of the play, where the king of thieves and Thebes and uh, Hippo- or I'm sorry, Duke of Athens are and Hippolyta are getting married, and somehow all of their stories intersect there at that festival. So there you go. Wow. There you go. We've we've gotten through at least the setup of all the different plot lines. It's wild. There's a lot of mistaken identity. There's a lot of really funny lines, a lot of really funny writing. And there's also a lot of magic. This is Magic Month. There's a lot of magic that occurs in this play. First of all, one of those three groups is magic, right? I mean, a whole group of these characters is fairies. Right. Like a fae, otherworldly force that kind of messes with humans a little bit. But not too much, just like the fun way. Well, but not always, though, because it is set up that this this conflict between Oberon and Titania has grown so large that that it's causing like rivers to overflow and ruin fields because there's something about how because Oberon's mad at Titania, he's not letting her fairies do their like springtime dance. So it's causing all this havoc in the natural world. So there's this base layer kind of conflict of will the fairies resolve their differences enough to stop ruining the lives of humans yeah (laughs) and in the meantime they do a little bit more of human life ruining (laughs) via their meddling it's like it's like yeah the fairies are kind of uh, i imagine that this is born out of uh you know british isles fairy kingdom literature where you know the fairies are this race they're somehow separate but they're really integrated into the land still and so when they are angry the land is angry things start to spiral out of control and 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 <laughs> eventually someone needs to step in to set it all right again i think I, I really like the novelist Brandon Sanderson. He writes a lot of fantasy, a lot of uh, sci-fi, that kind of stuff. And I listened to a lecture that he gave once on magic systems. And he described how there's kind of two camps of magic. The first camp would be to create a really elaborate magic system with carefully crafted rules, careful understandings of how the magic works, how much magic requires, how much power, what are the consequences of using certain kinds of magic. And then there's another camp where the magic is much more mysterious. How does it really work? How? What are really the consequences? What are really the limitations? And he described how, based on what camp 
trap you fall in, that's going to change your plot some. Because if you have an elaborate magic system with elaborate, carefully crafted, easily understood rules and limitations, then some of your plot can be based around using the magic in creative and interesting ways. Because it's interesting to watch characters deal with problems presented by the limitations and consequences of the magic and solve those problems. But if you choose to have a more mysterious, more intangible magic system, then it, it's not really dramatic or interesting to base a lot of your plot in a lot of the problem-solving level of your plot in the magic system. Instead, you're going to have characters problem-solve in normal human conflicts just in a world of magic. The magic won't directly influence the actual choices the characters make a lot because it's not very interesting for characters to make choices you don't understand. This play is interesting because on the one level, the magic is pretty clearly understood. You have the love potion. When you put the love potion on somebody's eyes who's asleep, the next person that they see when they wake up is the person they're going to fall in love with. So it's not a very accurate weapon. Yeah, but on the other hand, there's kind of the 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 fey wild magic esqueness of the fairies where, you know, Oberon just kind of solves the problem at the end. He's like, Oh, don't worry. I'll take the curse away from Lysander. If you drug Demetrius again, <laughs> like, so, so, so there's that, I think what's kind of one of the weird things that are going on here is it's mashing up two magic systems. You have the, the flower that the potion is made from is actually a flower that was shot by Cupid's arrow. So you have a magic system born out of the power of the gods um, and, and specifically the Greek gods. So that's kind of this, you know, immutable things have rules. When you're shot with Cupid's arrow, you fall in love. Next person you see. And there's that's a the potion the that's the antidote and it just works by putting the potion on. I mean, that system is manipulatable and has consequences and limitations. And then you have fey magic, which is this, this like I said, this kind of wild thing, this thing that is attached to the land that is uh, uh, dependent on the whims of a creature with, uh, uh, with moods, <laughs> with emotion. And, and depending on what happens on a given day, that magic can have big effects on the people around them just, just on a whim. Like, poor right. Bottom suddenly gets a donkey yeah, head for and, a day. And, like, the question is, what can Puck do? I mean, what are the what limitations of Puck power, Puck's power? I have absolutely no idea. The guy can traverse the world, he claims, in 40 minutes and can, at a whim, transform people into other creatures. He can mimic voices. He can mimic ghouls and goblins and scary creatures in the fog. He can control the weather enough to produce a fog on command when Oberon, right. when Oberon commands him to do it. So Puck's power seems very nebulous. What are the consequences and limitations of Puck's magical power? No idea, really. <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah, which which adds this kind of, um, you know, it, it's 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 you can't spend too much time, like Jacob said, with this you know, making plot points out of the magic, what it does is it complicates the plot points. So the plot points that are advancing are made more difficult to accomplish by this this wild thing running around with magic <laughs> that just kind of wants wants to see interesting things happen even more than Oberon does. Like Oberon eventually tires of of Puck's games in this play and puck's like but but that was so much fun did you not have fun he's like no switch it around puck this was way too confusing well yeah and 
what becomes so interesting in this script, and it's honestly one of the criticisms of the script as it's existed, is what choices exactly are the human characters making over the course of the script? Who is making plot-forwarding decisions in the story? Really, Puck and Oberon. Other than that, (laughs) characters are largely reacting. I mean, you have the initial decision by Lysander and Hermia that they're going to run away as a result of the problem confronting Hermia. I either have to marry Demetrius, die, or become a nun. So to solve that problem, Lysander and Hermia make a deliberate choice to run into the forest. That's a choice they make that's that's a little bit reactive, but still something that they're choosing uh, as a result of their own brain power. And then Helena's decision to tell Demetrius about it is the same. But once they get into the woods, the men are, the men become the result of love potion, right? The decisions that they make at that point are not their own. Right. Yeah, it's almost like a like an improv game where suddenly you get a whole new thing that you have to work with. Like it doesn't it doesn't feel like their choices are being uh, governed too much. But I would think that Helena and Hermia probably have some governance left, as they are not uh, they are not really affected by the love potions or the love flower throughout this play. I wonder if some of the the direction of the play takes over in their conflict, which is a fully um, sober one, I guess. No, I think that that's, that's right. It's, it's interesting, of course, that of the four characters, the women are the ones who are left in their own brains. They're yeah. the ones left to take a new problem and with their own human willpower, human brain power, human decision-making, decide what they're going to do with this problem. And I've, I find some of their conversations as they react to these changing uh, loyalties of the men pretty interesting and honestly some of the best parts of the play. That whole middle scene where all four lovers are finally in a scene together and the different women are discovering that these men are now in love with the different woman, I find that to be the best scene of the play to me. Oh, yeah. However, if you go past that scene... It's not like either of these women solve the problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All yeah. they do really is react to the problem, and then the problem is solved for them. Right. <laughs> Via Puck again. Yeah, no, that's that's true. They, they I mean, the the issue doesn't <laughs> resolve ever. The, the fight is interesting to watch. Like, they, they both kind of, uh, they turn against each other. Everyone ends up chasing each other through the woods at the end of it, though. There is no, there is no resolve towards the end uh <laughs> even in the middle of the scene they, they turn on each other for for a while hermia and helena begin like attacking each other it's a very confusing moment though as characters right like for some reason both of these guys are being really weird in the woods and some of the stuff they're saying is just straight out funny like like how how they're trying they, they try to protect uh helena from hermia at one point because it's resolved to kind of physical violence uh that hermia is trying to attack helena it's, and- it's such a funny scene because <laughs> hermia has discovered that neither of these men love her anymore and right. she's for some reason decided that helena must have used her height as a reason why these men should fall in love with her instead. And so she says something like, I may be little, but I'm not short enough that I can't scratch your eyes out. Yeah. (laughs) And this is the play where the oft-quoted line comes from, though she be little, though though she is little, she is fierce, or something like that. I'm I'm paraphrasing a little bit. But from this scene, this like fight scene, that's where that, that, that quote is from. 
So how these characters end up with a kind of a lack of agency. It, it does seem like even when it comes to a point where even, even if you look at the script through the lens of Helena and Hermia, which I think is probably the right way to view that particular plot, Helena and Hermia as kind of the central agents, especially Hermia, around which the the plot kind of continually unfolds. What are they going to do with the challenges that are presented to them, the various challenges? And one of the new challenges is that these two men are have a love potion on them. What are they going to do? Even if you look at the script through that particular lens, I'm not sure the, the women are ever really given a chance to answer that question or at least answer that question as in a positive way. One particular answer might be what they're going to do is turn on each other. And that, I mean, that could be part of what Shakespeare's ultimate point is, is that there isn't, they don't really have a solution to that problem. When it comes down to it, they just turn on each other. Right. And, and are end up kind of saved deus ex machina style by, you know, a fairy god putting love potion De- on a different it's one. definitely deus ex machina. Yeah. I mean, this script is like the example of deus ex machina. Yeah. In, in, its, yep. in its literal word sense, you know, intervention by the gods. Actually, in, in the structural sense of like being saved by sort of an accident or by, you know, the will of the gods, meaning like something external to the plot. It's actually not that, now that I say that, because the, the characters who intervene to change the plot are characters in the play with their own goals and tactics. Yeah, which, which kind of begs the question, are we supposed to... Is the main plot line the lover's plot line? Or are we kind of, uh, are we being deceived a little bit with the prevalence of the humans as the main plot line? Are the fairies or perhaps the mechanicals more central characters to this plot? Well, I definitely think the human characters end up struggling to have any agency in the play. And on the one hand, you could say, ah, Shakespeare, you messed that one up, man. You wrote a play, and you wrote some characters that are fairies, and you ended up robbing the human characters of any chance to make any real decisions about their own lives. (laughs) On the other hand, Shakespeare might say, yeah, dummy, that was the point. That was what I was trying to say the whole time, dummy. <laughs> we don't have agency. Right. Well, I, and, you know, if you think about that as one of the themes of the plot, this idea that in our romantic entanglements, you know, this, they even say this in the beginning of the play, right? When, Hel- when Hermia and Lysander are left alone on stage after the father has said, you have to marry Demetrius or you're going to die. And the Duke has basically said, sorry, there's nothing I can do about it. Marry Demetrius or die. Lysander and Hermia are left alone on stage. And basically what they say is the famous line, you know, the course of true love never did run smooth. And Helena, or I'm sorry, Hermia, goodness, the confusion begins. (laughs) Hermia says, look, if this is what true love is about, then if, and I'll just quote it. If then true lovers have ever crossed, it stands as an edict in destiny. This idea that part of love is confusion, is a loss of agency, is things going wrong. That's part of what love is. Hmm. Yeah. And and the the <laughs> in the face of outside uh pressure and different different sorts of complications that can arise from <laughs> from just really anywhere you can't you can't possibly prepare for it but but still like 
it, it, as annoying as it is that it all is fine in the end, it is all fine in the end. You know, they fi- they still wound up together, and probably even better than they were before at the beginning of the play. Well, and and Helena says something very similar. She has the famous line, "Love looks not with the eyes, but with the mind." And if you follow that monologue down, she ends up saying this: "Therefore is love said to be a child, because in choice he is so oft beguiled." I mean, right Mm. from the beginning of the play, both of these central women characters basically have the same message, which is love is confused and confusion. That's part Mm. of what love is. And so then the magic system and the fairies that seem to be the only characters who have any real agency over what's going to occur in the storybook of the play they start to take on a, a kind of metaphoric thematic significance in the lives of these lovers. Sure. They, they're kind of become almost more like a, a glimpse behind the curtain of, of what's happening to us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're, than... they're parabolic, right? They're, they're representative of the crazy world of being in love. All right. the crazy confusion that can happen. Right. With the added kind of sauciness of, what if they were like people that were mad at each other all the time? <laughs> <laughs> and and the you know when you look at the plot at, at that level, love's confusion. Suddenly, so many elements of the plot start to have the same thing going on, right? At the core of the fight between the fairies is a confusion or a problem of love. At the <laughs> core of the the play within the play that the rude mechanics are the mechanicals are putting on is a problem, a confusion, a struggle of love, a mistaken identity. In this case, the the cape left by the lion that that Pyramus think has murdered Thisbe, and uh, even you know even Titania's marriage to Bottom, this sort of confusion of identity, this this world in which her love is misplaced, is beguiled. Yeah, and I, I, I think, and then like the confusion from the the mechanicals around how they're going to put on the play as well is just so convoluted, and 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 yeah, the, the struggle to bring to bring something to fruition despite this is like this the the rude mechanicals are like the first it play within a play that's a play made by community theater actors i feel like in some ways you kind of get the the struggle of different egos all rolling around each other and talking to each other and yet somehow they they put on a play at the very last minute in the end yeah the mechanicals i think get shortchanged a lot because when you do shakespeare in most cases you're just required to do a cutting of the script a lot there's just not a lot of audience that want to sit through the whole Shakespeare script, the whole five acts. So right, you end up right. doing a lot of cutting, even with Midsummer, which is actually relatively short play. It's not really that long, even if you do the whole five acts. But even with that play, you gotta do some cutting. And I think the mechanicals are the ones that often end up on the short end of that stick, which is a bummer because they're so funny. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I've ever even seen a version of the play that has the full play at the end of the play. Um, but, but that, 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 that scene in the middle where they're just like, bottom really wants to play every role in the play pretty much. <laughs> and like, to keep saying how great he's going to be. And, and the, the, the director of the play keeps having to like talk him down. And there's this great interchange back and forth between these characters. He's just like, <laughs> he's, he's, he's one of those characters that is so fun to play and, and 
different actors will bring different things to that role each time it's produced. So so you could go and see like 10 different bottoms and there'd be something different each time. Right. It, it, these comic secondary level characters that Shakespeare writes are often some of the ones that have a ton of life, right? Because when you go to see Henry Four, you're all, oftentimes <laughs> you're like, who's going to be Falstaff? What's right. the what's the Falstaff actor gonna do? And the bottom character in this is is a very similar character. It's oftentimes a really strong actor can bring a ton of life to the bottom character in a way that elevates him beyond his station of sort of a secondary character. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, because there's 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 so much physical comedy. This play has a ton of physical comedy in it. In a play where everyone is confusing their uh, their relationships with each other, bottom bottom's physical comedy where he's like being waited on by the fairies and he comes on you have to figure out a way to have a donkey head on stage like that's the other kind of magical part of this play and you mentioned the kind of acrobatics that that the peter brooks production did like this scene with the fairies where they all come on come up to this donkey person like that must be such an open opportunity for people to start playing with what it's like for fairies to interact like this is this is almost a you know, a Bacchus style thing going on where there's, there's now a donkey and fairies and a fairy court. So how do you envision that on stage? And how do you make it different from the human world in a way that makes it very clear that you're in a world of supernatural beings who have a different level of power and a different level of control? Again, I mean, the amount of things Puck can do seems unlimited. (laughs) Right. Yeah. He's like, you know, stepping in and out of trees and like floating between different places. He's like, yeah, I, I agree that like what he almost reminds me of, of like the Tempest and that that magic system as well. He seems like a character that is tied to something outside of our ability to understand, but but is still like super invested in the world somehow. Like his magic is for the world, but from a different world entirely. And he seems so, I don't know, so without a goal. Like, it's sort of unclear scene to scene what he's actually pursuing besides just doing what Oberon tells him to do, but doing it badly. I wonder if that's his limitation. I wonder if that's the limitation of, of his magic and his character is that while he is immensely powerful, he needs an Oberon. To get anything done. Otherwise, he'd just like kind of float around. He'd spend, you know, eternity just messing up a couple people's lives. Nothing too terrible or awful, but, you know, just laughing his way through life. And so he that in that way, he and Oberyn become kind of symbiotic characters because um, Oberyn doesn't seem all that powerful. He doesn't, with the exception of the real quick, I'll make a potion that cancels the potion. He doesn't seem to have a whole lot of power other than his rank. And the fact that he has Puck within his thrall. Right. And does, you know, is Oberon have this secret well of power that he's not showing? In which case, why does Oberon need a Puck? Yeah. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe it's all a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Regardless, though, Puck, Puck becomes like this... You, you you imagine him showing up in like other stories, right? Like he's 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 a character that you feel like could repeat and and be a part of a larger world. You could almost like, you know, get its own Netflix original series around the adventures of Puck that are have nothing to do with Oberon and, and this play, but he's 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 a an otherworldly 
over this plot sort of character. And he absolutely loves the confusion of human beings. Causing confusion and chaos, if he has a long-term goal, you know, across the whole course of the story, seems to be somewhat of what he's after. The famous, famous line from this show, Lord, what fools these mortals be, is a Puck line. And it's because... Puck hat is Puck and Oberon are watching the results of the love potion being put on the wrong person. And at this point, I think when Puck says it, I think I'm right about this. At this point, Helena loves Demetrius, who loves Hermia, who loves Lysander, who loves Helena. And this is before they've sought that before they put the love potion on both men. So the the quartet all loves the wrong person. And basically Puck brings the right person over to the sleeping Demetrius so he can wake up and be in love with with her. And he he basically says, oh, all this confusion and chaos. We should watch this pageant unfold. Lord, what fools these mortals be. And I don't know. (laughs) It's such a great line. But. When you re- when you see it in context of the story, to me it almost comes off as cruel because they're only fools because you messed with them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He reminds me of like a uh, you know the all magic comes at a price adage. If for for those of you who watch uh, Once Upon a Time the TV show, um, all magic does come at a price, and and Puck is kind of the price. <laughs> Uh, as as Oberon is trying to use magic, he's this kind of you know intermittently uh, kind of nasty kind kind of person who enjoys seeing others suffer just a little bit. Right. And, I mean, besides turning Bottom's head into a donkey's, which is mean enough, right. he then chases off all the other actors by appearing as monsters in the fog. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's 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 this crazy little enigmatic character that like, yeah, I I, I I he's one of those ones that I am past my ability to play, but I wish I had been able to play Puck <laughs> at some point because he's kind of like this 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 like wild wild character that you you end up thinking of him as kind of childish. Um, so so it'd be, it'd be I, I'm always excited to go see a different Puck play him. Yeah, Puck, I think, is like Bottom. He's one of those characters you look for in this show. What are they going to do with Puck? Is the Puck going to be a dancer? I've seen, I think, two or three different Midsummer productions where there was a heavy element of dance in the Puck actor. Uh, is Puck going to be in, in terms acrobat? Is Puck going to be played as a child? I've seen a Midsummer where a child played Puck. And, <laughs> man, that was cool. Yeah, <laughs> and also a little terrifying. Right. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> It's so interesting, we've... though, that, that you know, if you look at the play in a structural basis, right, at the beginning of the play, there's two women, both whose name starts with H. At the beginning of the play, both the men are in love with one of those women who starts with H. Then, after the involvement of the gods, much con- or the fairies, much confusion and chaos is born out of the fact that both men love the other woman that started with an H. So I don't know, Jackson, help help us think through. There's some kind of commentary there because ultimately what the fairies do doesn't change that much. Instead of both the men being in love with one woman, both the men are in love with the other woman. But the problem still exists. Right. 
<laughs> which is that the, there's not the right combination of loves, right? Because Hermia loves Lysander, and so that one's okay, but the problem is that Demetrius also loves Hermia. Then the fairies get involved, and Helena loves Demetrius, so that's okay, but the problem is Lysander also loves Helena. Right. So this, it just flips. <laughs> yeah, and it becomes a mess. Um, huh, I mean, part of it could be like the... <laughs> This is maybe just a little bit too on the nose, but like the dangers of looking for, you know, outside help in matchmaking um, <laughs> um, could be part of it. Or or it's just I, I, I think it's kind of the it's the be careful what you wish for adage in some ways. Like this is what happens when you like try to when what you wish for comes true. But, but there are consequences as a result of it. it like how you get what you wish for um, matters. And, 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 I, and I'm aware as I'm saying this that Helena has no agency in getting this. <laughs> but, but still, like the, the, the way that it comes about through, through like magic and stuff um, it winds up being not quite what you, what you wanted in the end. And it needs another intervention or more intention to to bring about to what you were hoping for. I actually kind of that, that's kind of interesting because there is some level at which the story is kind of the same as any other sort of Christmas wish story, you know, <laughs> yeah. where like somebody's like, "Oh, I wish it'd snow on Christmas," and they fall asleep and they wake up and it's like blizzarding. Right. Or any other similar kind of story where you wish for something and you end up getting too much of it or you get it in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And and some of Helena's lines kind of represent that. Like, as as both of the men are uh, kind of <laughs> espousing their feelings for her, she starts to believe that they're just making fun of her. Like, she's not even able to... to uh, to accept she she doesn't believe it she's she she can't accept that their affection for her is genuine and and part of that is because of how rapidly it happens right like love is not something that flips on a dime so of course she reacts quickly and and viscerally to what feels like the her friends you can't see my air quotes but friends um but feels like kind of making fun of her and taking advantage of her feelings uh, altogether and the other part of this is that Hermia and Helena are longtime friends themselves. There's a great speech uh, right when Helena and Hermia have come together after the love potion has been in effect. Helena still thinks this is a trick. And so Hermia arrives and says, Lysander, what's going on? And Lysander says, I'm in love with her. And Hermia says, what do you mean? And Helena then think, then she, I think the line is actually, she is one of their confederacy. As in, <laughs> she's in on this trick. You're also tricking me. And so then mm-hmm. Helena goes into this pretty touching monologue about how we used to be such good friends. We were like sisters. We shared everything between each other. How could you be so cruel as to play this cruel, cruel trick on me? And so being longtime friends, I wonder, Jackson, if you agree with me, it seems like between the two of them, there might be a long-standing inadequacy on Helena's part in, in how she feels in comparison to Hermia. I think I think that's absolutely right, and I think probably Hermia has some of that not too far below the surface too. Um, she just happens to, in this stage of life, uh, be be the one who is <laughs> alluring both Demetrius and uh, Lysander. But underneath the surface of both of these characters, not too far down, is kind of this. Uh, 
this discontent with each other because right away, right away when Hermia figures out the game, uh, she says it's because she's so dang tall. I always knew it. <laughs> I knew it was because she was tall. Um, and so, so that uh, in that way, I think both of them have this kind of not too deep seated resentment against each other. And and the couple versions I've seen of the play, you you, it's hard to not include that as, as when you're playing Helena, like Helena kind of has this just a little bit like she, she, she loves Hermia. She's her friend, but she, she does have this, this uh, discontent with her because she is kind of her. She is in a way stealing the affections of the person that Helena loves. Yeah, they are there. There's a deeper level of their friendship, which is put up to challenge by the problems presented to them. And I don't think Hermia might might be in such a state of being in love with Lysander that she's unaware, really, of how Helena feels or is sort of blissfully ignorant of it. You know, right away, their first scene, Helena comes in upon Hermia and Lysander alone and basically says, oh, you're so much more beautiful than me. That's why Demetrius is in love with you. Why Why does he love you instead of me? And I think Hermia kind of blows her off. And yeah. said, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I'm so sorry. They do wish her well, but then they right. kind of head off. And it's only when the tables are turned by the effect of the love potion that Hermia is put in a position of finally understanding or be her bubble is popped. And she's forced to finally look at the world through Helena's eyes. And she ends up saying almost the same thing that Helena said, which yeah. is there's something wrong with me or you, you've you used to your advantage some physical attribute or some characteristic of yourself over me to win both of these men. Yeah, her sympathy moves to empathy all of a sudden because of her shared experience. Now, that empathy doesn't necessarily generate a healthy response, but... But still, like it, it, it you, you kind of get a, it's a taste of your own medicine sort of thing. Like you, you get to see, in, in another story, like this would be what the fairies would do, right? Like they see this kind of uh, false or not false, this uh, this dichotomy between their experience, and they're like, well, what if you lived in their shoes for a day? Like that's a pretty familiar fairy. Right, it's story. sort of Freaky Friday esque. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or like Prince and the Popper or something like that, where where like you you switch out roles. In this case, it's completely out of their control. They're like Freaky Friday. They're thrown into each other's shoes, and you get to see what it's like. Um, but 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 <laughs> that I think that's. There, there is no like moral to that again because they don't know that they. I don't think anyone ever finds out that they are love potioned at the end of this play, right? Like it's just kind of this weird day in the woods. Well, yeah, because even at the end, Demetrius basically says, "You know, I'm not really sure why, but I'm in love with Helena now." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it, it, it. You think about, you know, what would have happened if Puck had gotten it right from the beginning. So instead of if Miss Love Potioning Lysander, he just did it with Demetrius like he was supposed to. Demetrius woke up, falls in love with Helena. If all of the confusion is avoided by Puck simply doing his job right, where does that story lead? Well, still at the end of the play, the lovers are with the quote-unquote right person. They're both at least going to be in happy relationships with the, you know, at least the women with the with the guy they were in love with at the beginning of the play. But you wonder if this underlying inadequacy and tension in the Helena and Hermia friendship would have ever really been brought up or solved in any way. 
Yeah, probably not. And they certainly wouldn't have wound up in, you know, similar cities. Like, imagine, yeah, the world is definitely for the better because of Puck's mistake in the long run. It was a really confusing day for everyone. But, like, the friends now can live in the same city together. Uh, Hermia is not killed. Um <laughs> <laughs> the the natural order is restored somehow so dang it if Oberyn wasn't right to do this somehow <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean it, it the happy mistake ends up probably for the better for all four of these people including the friendship between Hermia and Helena Right, which is which is not it's not so much a story theme that we have anymore in our vernacular, right? Like we're used to seeing things end, you know, somewhat unideally when gods intervene. Um, versus this this play, which kind of says, you know, yeah, the gods meddle and and it happens, but <laughs> but in the end, it all works out somehow. We're all okay at the end of at the end of all this. You know, the the end of the play is this kind of like blessing dance that the fairies are doing over the wedding of the Duke of Athens and Hippolyta. So it's like, yeah, we, we messed you guys up, but also we help out in the end. It's all fine. Don't worry, the rivers will work now. Yeah, so, and, and <laughs> in the world of it's all fine, uh, the the ongoing conflict between Oberon and Titania gets resolved very easily. Once Titania falls in love with Bottom, basically Oberon says, well, she's so in love with this donkey guy, I'm just going to go ask her for what I want. She'll be so distracted that she'll give it to me. But then we don't even get to see that scene. <laughs> he just shows up to unlove potion her. And right. basically tells the audience, oh, yeah, she agreed. She gave me the servant that I wanted, that, that boy. <laughs> she she just gave it to me while she was in love with Bottom. So it's all good. He takes the love potion off of her eyes, and she's confused, but their feud also seems to be over. And they go hand in hand to dance at the wedding, leaving Bottom alone in the woods. And this is probably the right point for us to turn, maybe in these final few minutes of our conversation, Jackson. We've talked a lot about the fairies, a lot about the people. What about the mechanicals? Sure, yeah, the rude mechanicals, <laughs> as they are called. Yeah, they, I mean, <laughs> they're kind of a weird character. I'm I'm honestly a little in, in the wondering about them. Some of the time, <laughs> if I'm being just straight up honest with y'all, I'm like, I get I get why they're there in the middle of the play. They're they're a fantastic add to the chaos, right? People who want to rehearse a play, who don't want to rehearse the play in the city will they be interrupted and they can't, you know, get into character like they really should. Let's go into the woods where no one will be watching us, we'll be all by ourselves, and they happen to stumble across the sleeping place of the queen of the fairies as they do it what a great setup for, what a great complication to story right these these goofballs doing their play and they're in the perfect place at the perfect time for this this crazy little fairy dude to turn one of them into a donkey so that the queen of the fairies can fall in love with him perfect storyline i love it i don't know why we end the play with their play <laughs> <laughs> other than uh, other than to confirm, I, I liked what you said about the unification of confusion, right? The story that they're telling is is another story of confusion and people killing themselves when they shouldn't should have just waited a couple more hours. So I, I like that in addition to the theme, but it's like, you know, six pages in my script of another play that these guys are putting on at the end of the play. And I'd be interested to know what you think about that as the ending to the play. 
I think the mechanicals are really, really interesting. One of the reasons that I think they're so interesting is in contrast to some of Shakespeare's other plays within a play. For example, Hamlet. There's a very popular, very famous play within a play from Hamlet. Before they do the play in both Hamlet and Midsummer, the kind of central leader character gives the actors a speech, gives them some advice. In Hamlet, the advice is famous advice for actors and theater goers everywhere. It's serious and it's important. And actors, like I said, like actors everywhere, study these this advice that the is provided to the actors within the play of Hamlet. In Midsummer, Bottom's advice to his fellow actors before they put on this show is don't eat onions because we want the words we say to come out sweetly. Uh-huh. Oh my goodness, the other one was don't be too much like a lion so that you scare people. Well, yeah, like- there's this whole middle <laughs> rehearsal scene where they decide that the play's contents is too it's it's too much um uh, it, it, this, this is the wrong content. It'd be too scary, too violent right. for a wedding, especially for the women at a wedding, which, you know, there's some other sexist stuff in the play, but that's at least yeah. one of them. Um, and, and so they decide that they're going to describe for everyone that what they're seeing is fake as if (laughs) these actors and the performances are so realistic that the problem is people are going to think it's real (laughs) (laughs) there's a first of all they're they're crazy because they're all terrible as we learn but (laughs) it's also it's it's sort of brechtian before it's time right because your solution is like uh uh Bottom is going to walk out and say, I'm Bottom and I'm playing Pyramus, so don't worry. When the character dies, it's not, I'm not really dead. (laughs) I'm still Bottom. And for the lion character to say, I'm not really a lion. Don't get too scared. <laughs> Don't get too scared. And like, TC recommends that he take off half his mask so that you can see the human face underneath. Like, like really don't worry. This is not a lion on stage. I think that some of the end of this play, again, scene five is, is really just, it's after all the problems have been solved ex- except for the problem of the mechanicals, which is they're going to do this play. Pretty much all the other problems for the other characters have been solved. The wedding has happened. And after the wedding, they want to watch some entertainment. So all of Act 5 is this play within a play that the Rude Mechanicals do. And they do a bad job. They stutter through it. (laughs) They miss cues. They say things wrong. And the cast of people who's watching, who's the all the three couples that get married, are constantly kind of heckling and commenting throughout the play. I think one of the reasons why we see that has to do with the advice that Puck gives us after all of that. So after all that has happened, the lovers have all retired to their bedchambers for their wedding nights, and the fairies are going through and blessing all the houses and all the beds. And Puck says, well, look, if, if you didn't like the play, just pretend it was a dream. Just pretend <laughs> it didn't really happen. And this question of what is real and what's a dream comes up a lot of times through the play. And then we get this performance by the Rude Mechanicals in which they make a a point of saying what you're seeing is not real. Hmm. Yeah, okay. I see where you're going. So so the the uh, Yeah, the 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 again a unifying theme throughout this play all the way to the end is this like <laughs> we're still leaning into confusion. We're leaning into you know, if if you if if you if you're feeling confused, it's okay. 
just kind of go along for the ride? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's definitely on the right path. It, there's an, a there's a sense of this play as existing in illusion and dream, you know. Um, when when the when Theseus and Hippolyta are married, they they come on stage and they basically say, uh, they, "Look, these four people told us this wild story about what happened to them in the woods. Surely that can't be true." And then they start to say, "Well, they all four told the same story." But the Duke says something along the lines of, "Look, when you're in the woods like that and it's dark." and you're tired things seem like they're there when they're really not bushes look like monsters you can be scared by nothing that that's kind of the experience of it and and a number of other times that kind of conversation comes up there's a sense of the rude mechanicals putting a very fine point on this question of what you're seeing is fake. You just watched a play about fairies intervening in the lives of humans. It's fake. It's an illusion. It's a dream. We know, (laughs) but there's still a story there. There's still a real emotional reaction connection that you had with the story. There's still a world in which you might have something real happen to you because of the illusion that you just experienced. Yeah, I like that a lot. I like that it's kind of it's <laughs> it's almost a con- condemnation towards those of us who are trying to analyze the thing. Like, just enjoy the play. <laughs> and like. <laughs> I like it though that that you know the magic doesn't have to make sense. You don't have to worry about like why things happened the way they did, but you you enjoyed it. You connected with it. These people all connected with each other in the end. It's fine. If you didn't like it, it was just a dream. That's going to be okay. Yeah, but I mean this is the famous if we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that while you have but slumbered here, while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. The the famous line. And you know, the if so imagine that you took that advice, right? So Puck says that to you at the very end of the play and you go, "You know what? I hated this show. I am going to pretend it was just a dream." But one of the que- one of the points of the play is even things that are just dreams, just temporary, just happen to you in the in the forest, and you they they maybe happened or they maybe didn't. Even those things still have very real impacts on your life to come. Right? They have. Yeah, it kind of draws people people who don't like the play into still being affected by the play. Like in a weird way, it it asks you to engage even more like in a, in a, in a paragraph that could be interpreted as just disengage. If he didn't like it, it's, it's not actually that it's, it's that, you know, this is still going to stick with you. So kind of find a way to deal with it. <laughs> and and in that way, the mechanicals operate as a really uh, blunt, perhaps right. point of that, because the story, the play they put on is terrible. It's it's awful. It offends the sensibilities of everybody watching. (laughs) But a very real benefit happens to them. The the audience that watches is really gracious to them, and the mechanicals are very pleased with the performance that they gave. Their lives are very much made better by the illusion, even the bad one, that they just put on. 
<laughs> and this, of course, goes along with who we know Shakespeare was. Shakespeare apparently was famous for kind of giving an opening speech to plays occasionally and saying, kind of emphasizing the humility of what they're about, everybody's about to see. You know, it's just a play. It's no big deal. And then, of course, he, he would put on Shakespeare. Right. Like some of the greatest theater of all time. And to and to everyone in power at the time, like his plays were well attended by everyone of various, you know, states and society. So so having these little paragraphs that that ask you to treat it lightly, but deal with the themes, I think, are an important historical context as well. Well, that is all we have time for, which is a shame, of course. We could spend all four episodes of Magic Month talking about Midsummer Night's Dream. There's a lot right. more to talk about. But we have more plays to talk about in later weeks, so we will be visiting a new magical play next week. Yes, but until then, if there were things that we missed that you really want to talk about, find us on all of our social medias. We got Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All the usernames are at NoScriptPodcast and all of those. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to keep having the conversation with you, whether you were in the play, have watched the play, read the play, watched one of the movies of the play, or listened to the audio. We'd love to keep having this conversation with you. And I would guess that probably more than most of the other scripts that we've done, there's probably a lot of you out there who have been in, designed for, directed, and dramaturged for, or at least seen Midsummer. I think that I, I would guess Midsummer is one of the most ubiquitous plays in the world of theater. So there's probably a lot of you out there who have interacted some way. So please shoot us a message, post on our wall, send us an email. We want to talk with you further. If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, please let us know, but also please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell people about it. That's one of the great ways that this podcast continues to grow. You can find our podcast on Podbean where it's hosted. We're also on Google Play, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you're listening, you've already found the podcast. So right, that right. information's not for you. It's for the people you're going to tell the tell, yeah, tell about. Yeah. Spread um, the word. Spread the word. You can find a link to each new episode every Monday on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So until next Monday when we're coming at you with the second play of Magic Month, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No Script, the podcast. See you next week.